0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of the Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
2: Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I've been waiting for this day for so long. My friend Liz Shire is here. She's a former Penguin Random House editor who worked in publishing and content development for many years, including at barnesandnoble.com and Amazon. She writes book reviews and feature articles for Publishers Weekly. She is now a product developer living in Washington, D.C. with her husband, two small children, and an ill-behaved cat. Never Simple is her first book. Shire. Christman. (laughs) I feel like... Over the years that I've known you, any time we would get together, there would be a, a designated spot in the, in the in the night, I'd say, um, for you to give an update about your mother.
1: <laughs> that is absolutely true, and it was usually completely bonkers.
2: It, it it was, and so it wasn't until I read your memoir that I kind of put all of the stories together. I'm wondering about how that felt for you to craft a narrative out of your relationship with with her.
1: Yeah, it it was mostly a challenge to try to make a coherent narrative out of a necessarily incoherent life, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, the best way that I can describe my mother's life. Um, You know, if I had to if I had to explain my mother in a phrase, I would say that she had done her very best, but that her best was not very good. Mm -hmm. Um, My mother uh, struggled with various kinds of mental illness and symptoms for her entire life. Um, I didn't understand as a small child what was really going on there. I knew it was strange that she largely did not leave her apartment, our apartment, and did not over time leave her bedroom very much. And I knew that she was rageful in a way that most people were not right that she would not just get angry but get into these fugue states almost where when she um when she got mad when i did something wrong you know like the like a red light would go on behind her eyes Mm -hmm. and she would like spit would fly and she was completely out of control and you could just see nobody was driving the bus and i knew all those things were not normal but i didn't know why and it wasn't until i was in my early 20s and i heard this diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, that things sort of started to fall into place, that she lived in a world where everything was a threat and every person was a potential betrayer. So just, it was just like walking around being one giant amygdala all the time,
2: I imagine. And that's gotta be exhausting for a daughter.
1: (laughs) I think it was exhausting for both of us.
2: For both of you, Yeah,
1: That is very Um...
2: true. And I, I I am fascinated by the fact that for most of your mother's life, you had a particular story you told yourself about her, which she had told you, and then um, you learned how much of that story wasn't real, wasn't true. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah. So... My mother was a uh, a brilliant storyteller. And one of the stories she told me was that when she was pregnant with me, uh, my father had been driving somewhere and had stopped at a red light, and the person behind him hadn't, and that he had been killed instantly, and that in a storm of grief, she had burned all the pictures, burned all his belongings, um, that she had gotten married in an ivory pantsuit that she'd returned to its owner. Uh, all of these things that essentially wiped him off the face of the earth. And as a kid, I I kind of believed this for a while um, until it occurred to me that I didn't know anybody else whose father had been misplaced quite that dramatically. Like some of them, some people had parents who were divorced, but like they could still, you know, they still knew their father's name. They knew where he Mm -hmm. could be located. Um, And so as a kid, you know, of course, everything was very grandiose and very, you know, self-legendized. And so I figured he was still alive somewhere, that he was you know a spy right or sure, of imprisoned in a case of wrongful identity right that it was something mm-hmm. really fancy um and then as i got into my teenage years and became very cynical about everything i thought he was probably just married somewhere um it, it turned out of course that none of these things were true that he was in fact dead but just very much not in the way that she had told me and i found this out one day and this is where the book starts when i was 18 and i was home from college from my uh, my first fall break and I was going to get a learner's permit because when you grow up in Manhattan, I mean, there's no driver's ed, nobody knows. Of course a car. Not. Like driving a car is a complete, it's like driving, a like flying a jet plane, right? <laughs> like, you know, someone knows how to do it, but it's not gonna be you. <laughs> anyway, so I'm gonna get a learner's permit and she comes into the room looking really uncomfortable in one of her like giant purple mumus, and says, so you said you wanted to get a learner's permit. I'm sorry, but you're not going to be able to. And I said, okay, why? And she said, well, you don't have a birth certificate. And I said, oh, that's fine. You can, I'll I'll just write away for a copy. She's like, no, 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 you're not listening. It's not that you don't have a copy of your birth certificate. I never filed one. There is no record of your birth. And I said, okay, why? (laughs) Uh, This is the the mantra, as you can tell, was why is all this happening? Uh, And she said, well, I was married when you were born, but not to your father. And so that next 15 minutes of conversation kind of unspooled some of the story, the the real story of what had happened, um, which was that, she, I knew that she had been married uh, not long after college, amicably divorced after that, and she had, in fact, had a second marriage, but it was not to my father. It was a man I had never heard of um, who apparently pulled the car over after their wedding ceremony because the voices in the engine were talking to him, um, and that began a fairly troubled relationship in which he, I think, beat her Pretty badly she finally kicked him out and they never divorced so my mother was married to the second husband until like i was in late high school and i had never heard his name so that was a little unnerving <laughs> because <laughs> you know we, we lived in this very very codependent like two-person life she was uh, one of the uh symptoms of borderline personality disorder is an inability is, is a great fear of abandonment right a crippling fear of abandonment and so there's an inability to tolerate any boundaries between yourself and a child. And so she, you know, she held on tight to me. Like I wasn't allowed to close my door. She took the door off off the hinges if I tried. She threatened to have me followed in the streets if I didn't tell her where I was, right? She just had to have me close all the time. Um, And yet despite this unnatural and unhealthy closeness between the two of us, I didn't know she was married all that time, which is (laughs) kind of mind blowing to me still. Um, And that some years after her husband had had left and they had not been in contact anymore. My father had picked her up in Central Park by asking for a section of the New York Times and if there is a better 1970s New York love story than that, I have not heard it. <laughs> um, and you know they dated for six months or a year and at some point she called his apartment and his ex-wife pulled picked up the phone um, just there after his funeral and he had killed himself. Yeah, we both like simultaneously cast our eyes towards the heaven I feel like that's the only response. Yeah, that is. I, I mean bananas
2: you're successful in business because you love doing the research whether it's the state of the market or the next right hire but when you're low on hours and you still want to do a great job on hiring who do you go to for help it's time for indeed if you're hiring you need indeed because indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract interview and hire all in one place And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match assessments and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus you only pay for quality applications that meet your must have requirements. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com/maris. Offer valid through March 31st. Go to indeed.com/maris to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. indeed.com/maris. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And such a big part of this book is you wrestling with this inheritance that there's mental illness on both sides, and there's alcoholism. Um, and yet you are not just your mother and your father. you are someone with her own will
1: <laughs> i'm I'm working on that,
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's you know, that was part of the impetus for for writing the book. i I started writing it when I was back on matern- from maternity leave with my second child. I had, at that time, two kids under a year and a half because my husband and I are dumb. <laughs> um, and I realized that the only way I was going to have any, any time to myself, anything in my life that was not like diapers or development sprints, was lunchtime at work, right? These five carefully hoarded hour-long periods a week um, when I could actually do something for me. And that was a moment in time when my mother was uh, failing, that her dementia had t- started to war with her mental illness and she was in a lot of trouble. Uh, we were trying to keep her housed um, successfully and then not so successfully. And so three, you know, two days a week, I went to the gym and three days a week, I started this writing project. And it was really a therapy journal more than anything else because I was you know, in this heightened state of, of like fear and love and not knowing what to do all the time. And then she died about a year into it and I looked up and I had 50,000 words and I thought maybe this could be a thing maybe I, maybe I should keep going. And and the impetus for that was really that I had looked around when I was having my own children to find resources for having for starting to parent as someone who was raised in a chaotic um, household where mental illness was sort of the reigning feature. And maybe there's a ton of books out there. Maybe your readers will all call in and be like, why couldn't she find these? But I couldn't. Um, and so I wanted to, to write something that maybe would feel other people feel, make that would make other people, let me try that again. I wanted to write something that might make other people feel a little bit less alone on that count.
2: First of all, let me go back and say, I love that you think someone might call in. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and um, there's always I have complained. not heard of that book. Um, yeah.
2: You you talk ab- at, about, at the end, you discover a book about borderline personality amongst your mom's possessions, and you turn to your husband, Aryeh, and say, I wasn't making this up. Yeah. And there are so many different lies in your life. <laughs> It must have been terrible and validating at the same time.
1: It, that is a, a beautiful and perfect way to put it. It was. It was both those things. Um, my mother had definitely constructed a life for us. She had me living under a false social security number. You know, we we lived in this sort of constructed world. And when I when I finally read this book, it was it was very validating to know that other people had been through similar things. And, and in many cases, much worse, right? There were people in the book who described sleeping with a knife under their pillow, right? Because they were afraid their parent would come kill them, which was not at all, at all the case with my mother. Um, but one of the things about having a parent who lives in this kind of world is that it's very difficult to talk about because it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And, you know, I'm I'm certainly not saying that it is easy to say have a parent with who's had a heart attack or has cancer or something like that, but there are resources, there are support groups, there are people who've had similar experiences. Um, when, for example, uh, my mother called me one night in my, in my 20s and she had on tranquilizer voice, right? So I could tell the things were going to go a little bit awry. And it was, uh, it was in the spring when she was observing her own mother's yard site uh, for the Gentiles out there. That's the anniversary of someone's death. Uh, her mother had died many decades before uh, but she she called and said, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling. I'm afraid that my mother is down there lonely in her grave. And that was kind of a new story for her. And I There's said nothing to worry about. And and I said, you know, I'm I'm I was trying to be comforting. I said, you know, I, I don't think her soul is there. It's it's just the body. I, and she said, Well, but I I have an idea. I know how we can fix this. And I thought, I do not like the sound of that at all. Yeah. Um, and she said, What I need you to do, Elizabeth is for you to have a stillborn baby that we can then bury with her and it will keep her company. And like when you tell that story to your friends, it's not like there's a dozen people out there waving their hands going, me too, right? It's just, it's a hard story to tell. And I, I think often people, you know, there's there's always a couple, let me back up. One of the reactions you always get is a certain level of disbelief because it doesn't sound true, right? These are not stories that sound We would real. hope they. They aren't real. We would right, have exactly. you know, wishful thinking. Um, right. Like, or you just get sort of the horrified look. And so it's not something you talk about a lot because it it is almost not worth managing the response.
2: Yeah. And 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 of course, there's such a stigma around mental health problems. Like I, I feel like even though we know it's a stigma, we know yeah. that many people are going through the same thing. And yet, and yet, and yet, and I, I remember many nights when we would hang out with our group of friends, we would kind of, so much of what we talked about was our loved lives uh, above anything else, (laughs) right? Absolutely. And and like if you look at your love life as a prism through which you see the rest of your world, Mm -hmm. then I was really struck by the woman you call Laura in your book because it hadn't occurred to me that trust would be more important to you than to anybody else. And it is important to Yes, <laughs> everyone. Um, but that to be lied to is unbearable.
1: Yeah, it, I, I think that I had, to me, truth telling is, is very important. And I think that's true for everyone, right? No, most people do not like to be lied to. Mm-hmm. But to me, being lied to is very unsettling, because it reminds me, that I have believed enormous lies about myself that are completely life and world shaking. So it, it means more to me than just the small thing that was dissembled about, um, in this case that my uh, my now ex had uh, started an affair with her intern. Um, but I think part of what was so damaging to me about that was that I could look back over the you know weeks or months during which that had happened. And I could remember each individual instance where I was like, wait, you're going, where, or you were on the phone with who, and the answers that I got back were so, you know, in retrospect, obviously false, uh, but at the time, I, it was important to me to believe, because that would mean that everything was okay.
2: Yeah, and it, what you refer to it in the book as that fucking cake, <laughs> that fucking cake story, Of that, that's another thing that I feel like happened to you that sounds, it's almost unbelievable, because it's so ridiculous.
1: It is. So, the, so the, that fucking cake story is that <laughs> um, the, the intern was getting married um, a week after the, the discovery of the affair occurred. Um, we were supposed to go to the wedding. In fact, uh, about a month after this happened, I got my credit card statement where I had bought their wedding gift. We'd gotten them the cereal bowls. I hope her Cheerios were soggy every day for the rest of her <laughs> life. That is my vindictive thought about it. Um, but you know when, when my uh, my ex and i were in the car having this breakup conversation that i didn't yet know was a breakup conversation i thought it was a discovering infidelity conversation and i said i need you to stop talking to her and she said well maybe i will but i can't now because i'm delivering her wedding cake next week because my ex was a was a chef and sort of the top of my head just blew off but but again that was a very validating moment because i was like all right like, I'm not perfect to be in a relationship with by any stretch, but like, this is not normal. <laughs> you do not, even if the affair had never been discovered, you do not deliver a wedding cake to the wedding of the person you are now in love with. That is just not how things work outside of questionable British romantic comedies.
2: <laughs> it did feel like something out of a a book and, and not not like a tragedy, one that we can laugh about, you know, 10 years
1: on. Well, and that's the thing is that so much of this is funny, as long as it's not happening anymore. Do you you know what I mean? Like that fucking cake is hilarious. The image of my mother digging up her own mother's grave by moonlight to deposit a tiny little bundle in it. Hilarious in retrospect. Maybe this is some commentary on the nature of comedy that you just need you know, what what is the old statement that like tragedy plus time equals comedy? I think that really has become very, very clear to me in the time since.
2: But I also think that even when you told stories about your mother back in the day, you were always aware of the comedic elements to it. Um, And of course, that part of that is, you know, you're a funny person. Thanks. But I'm wondering about comedy as a survival skill?
1: I mean, I think you have to, to make it it work, right? I mean, a lot of these stories I think were pretty funny, really helped along by the fact that my mother had a very strong Queen's accent and virtually everything is funny in a Queen's accent. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, the fact that so many of these things were outsized, right? That her, when she was high in tranquilizers or when she was having a, a manic phase or when, she just did something wonkis. It was so beyond the pale that here's another commentary on comedy. Um, if you want to make something funny, just make it way bigger than it is. Right. A slightly larger than usual dog is just a great Dane, but a really big one is Clifford the big red dog. Mm-hmm. Right? You, ha- you have to make it absurd in a way. And it is completely absurd.
2: Yeah. And even I remember being at your wedding and it, it's let me go back. It's always so weird in a good way, most of the time, when a friend writes a memoir and you're able to like put the pieces together, what was going <laughs> on. Um, because I remember at your wedding, it, the ceremony started late. Mm-hmm. And maybe I learned why later. But um she she wouldn't let you have that one day
1: <laughs> or or she wanted to be part of that one day in a way that yeah. she could not i think from our respective corners my mother and i both wanted a hallmark movie mother daughter relationship right and i think that's really part of having uh, of mourning a relationship like this is that you mourn the relationship you didn't have as much as you are angry about the one that you did, and so, you know, as I was getting ready to walk down the aisle, and like this was, first of all, this was no like blushing bride, <laughs> military, whatever. Like I was five months pregnant, I was almost forty. Like we were, <laughs> we were having a different kind of wedding. Um, She decided at the last moment that she was going to walk me down the aisle, and that had never been the plan, Uh, and that if she couldn't do that, then she was going to be the last person to see me before the wedding, and if she couldn't do that, then she was going to stand in the middle of the synagogue and scream. And so the rabbi came up and said, you know, we will do whatever you want. If you want to allow this, we will reorganize the processions, no problem. Um, If you want security to march her out and not let her back in the building, we can do that too. And I kind of had to wrestle with that because it felt like a very pivotal moment of like, what does the rest of my life look like from this moment? Ari and I had been friends since we were in middle school. We'd gone to summer camp together, but we hadn't been dating that long at the time. His family did not know me. I was meeting many of them for the first time at the wedding and I didn't want this to be my introduction, right? Here's the bride, she just got her mother arrested, right? That's That's not a good beginning. And I think somewhere my mother knew that, that she had me backed into a corner that she, she was going to get this touching, lovey, loving movie moment, even if it was, compl- again, completely beyond the pale and completely bananas. And so you know, ultimately I, I let her come up and she had her moment of stroking my hair and tell me, telling me I looked beautiful. And I gritted my teeth and she went back downstairs and we went on with our lives.
2: And even before that event, you you were wise enough to ha- you designated some of your friends to monitor her, keep an eye on her, <laughs> and and I'm thinking about the amount of work that you had to do as an adult, um, answering all of her calls and making sure she was okay, and um, and suddenly you're kind of more like your mom's guardian than than a daughter.
1: Yeah, I think, I think guardian is a good way to put it. It is not, I'm realizing now, not all that different from parenting, right? That X number of hours a week had to be put aside to talking to the social workers and the doctors and whoever else was responsible for her care. Um, her care was also very expensive. I started paying for some of her bills, sometimes all of them, uh, soon after college. And so that was always the decision point, right? There was no like going to grad school. I couldn't just stop earning money for a couple of years. And it determined what jobs I took because her expenses could be put, be pretty high. So it, it really was just like having someone else um, to take care of, except it was someone who could come to my office and start screaming in the lobby on her own, which my children cannot yet do. <laughs> One day. Anyway, um, I look forward to their adolescence.
2: And of course, you needed a job that would pay money and yet (laughs) you chose to go into book publishing. Yeah, that
1: was poorly planned out, but it was so great. It's so much fun, you know.
2: It's pretty great. I also feel like another thing I didn't know about your mother before I read your book was about some idea of her life before you and how she was a lawyer and she was glamorous. And tell me about that person.
1: Yeah, that is a person I know through pictures and stories only. Um, My mother was born in 1939. She had me later in life and was uh, was raised in Queens, New York from from whence came the amazing accent. And I, I only found out much later that her Her father had abandoned her and her mother when she was not a year old. Um, And borderline personality disorder is often passed down the generations from parent to child, usually mother to daughter. And it is, it often starts as the result of trauma. And then the person because of their illness creates trauma in the next kid and then, and so on and and so on. And so I think that, uh, that abandonment kind of was the, was the bell that resonated down the rest of her years. Her her mother died when she was 19. Um, when she the mother was just a year older than I am now, which is a little bit wow. startling. She was uh, 44, and they didn't they didn't tell her she was dying because at the time that was thought to impede healing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, why you think there's any healing in stage four colon cancer is more than I can tell you, but th- that was the thinking at the time you know and she's 19 years old and the doctor in the emergency room hands her a cigarette and says here this will calm you down and she then smoked six packs a day for the next 60 years and then yeah she was you know she was raised to be someone's wife and someone's mother and she went to law school instead she was one of 12 women in her law school class and she practiced for a little while and it was not till many years later that i i discovered that she had left law because she had stopped coming to work because of her agoraphobia And so there was a settlement and she, I'm making air quotes, retired in her late 30s Um, and a couple of years went by and then she found herself um, surprised pregnant by a dead man and had to figure out how to to work the rest of her life. She, I mean, she was very glamorous. She was very beautiful. You know, she didn't, she didn't crack 100 pounds. So she got pregnant with me. She had the amazing like 60s flip. But then she stopped being able to manage the world and things fell apart piece by piece.
2: Tell me a little bit about life now. Um, Another thing about Shire, audience, is that not soon after the Laura cake debacle, (laughs) she reconnected with her camp boyfriend, friend, friend. friend. And discovered she was in love with him. And wanted to have his babies, and so she did.
1: Surprising for everyone. (laughs) It was was a
2: real twist.
1: It it was a real twist. Yeah, um, it was one of those moments in time when just everything big happens at once. So there was the big, like, dramatic breakup. And so I I had to move, of course, because we've been living together. And I had major surgery and things started going poorly at my job, which I knew I was about to lose and subsequently did. And so in the middle of this, I was like, I need some good things to happen to me. So I called up my old friend with whom I had a a certain amount of, and then we were not casual and then we were super not casual and then we were super (laughs) super really not casual. And then I was pregnant. Um, but I had not planned to have children. I did not. Uh, that was not something I had wanted to do with my life. But Ari really wanted kids. And I think at that stage, like, my plan had not worked out so great. <laughs> um, and so I thought, I've got to try something different, right? And it's not, having kids is a choice that a lot of people make. It's not completely bananas. It wasn't like we are going to go terraform Mars, right? This was in the in the realm of reasonable. Um and so I thought like, also I'm, I'm not young at this stage. I thought, let's try and see what happens. Probably it will take forever. Um, you know, we're getting married in five months. Um, maybe we'll like ramp it up after that. So it turns out, don't worry about your age necessarily because I was pregnant <laughs> like a month later. <laughs> um, and so then sure enough, we within about a six month period, Uh, both moved to a new city, moved to DC, both started new jobs, uh, got married, had the first baby, bought a house, and got pregnant with the second baby. Second PSA, don't believe that thing about breastfeeding being good birth control.
2: Wow. Wow. And just to leave us with this, how much... About your mother, do your children know and, and how much will you want them to know? Oh, God, that's the $64,000
1: question. I mean, you know, I was, I was angry at my mother for so many years because I knew she was lying to me about my father. I, I didn't know what the truth was, but I knew what I had was wrong. Um, and so it would be hypocritical of me not to give them this information as soon as they're old enough to understand it. But I can't say that I know when that time is Um, we had we had sort of just crossed the border of explaining my father's absence by the time we then had to explain my mother's Um, and those conversations were so perfunctory that after a while I started to wonder like my my husband's parents are lovely people and great grandparents and the kids are obsessed with them and so I wondered like when are they going to ask me about mine and why aren't they asking me about mine. And then a few months ago, we got the answer, which is that they believe Ari and I to be brother and sister.
2: Oh, that explains yeah, it So you, but right? you have the same
1: parents. And so exactly. Very, very uh, logical. Um, I wonder if they've been believing that they have to marry each other now.
2: Oh, we, you Whoa. should you should talk about that sooner. rather than I later. better explain that. <laughs> Hi, Ari, this is so delightful. Never Simple is your memoir. You should read it not you, Shire, but I just mean everybody listening. Um, Before we go, do you have some books you'd like to recommend?
1: I do. So the three books that I've read in the last couple of months that really blew me away were Amani Perry's South to America, Mm -hmm. which is the history of racism in the South. uh, That is a very uh, constrained way of talking about the scope of it, but it is really extraordinary. And, you know, as someone who has not spent a lot of time in the South, it was new to me, which which I think made it even the more shocking, but it is wonderful. Um, The new Hanya Yanagihara book, To Paradise, was wonderful. If you liked uh, A Little Life, which was the earlier book that ripped the nation's heart out at one Mm -hmm. time, um, I would definitely read that. Uh, And then finally, Jean Chen Ho's Fiona and Jane was one of my favorite books of the last couple of years. It is about uh, two daughters of Taiwanese immigrants living in LA uh, and the different turns that their lives take and the turns that their friendship takes over the decades. And it is just phenomenal.
2: Got to look for those. Thank you so much, Shire. Thank you, Maris. It was
1: was so great to see you. Thank you for uh, for taking the time to talk today.
2: Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.